Thank you. I hope you'll forgive me, by the way, if what I'm going to say is a bit disconnected, which it will be, because these are essentially new thoughts that I've been working on in the past few months, and I haven't really come up with a very articulate formulation yet. The title of the lecture has to do with the evolution of consciousness, and when I was um, studying ordinary language philosophy, I would have certainly had some sort of cataleptic fit had I projected ahead to 20 years and realized that I would be talking about evolution of consciousness. Gilbert Ryle, for instance, certainly would have called the very notion of, a, of an evolution of consciousness a category mistake, something that's just not possible. But due to my own work with near-death experience, and also with my own personal experiences just within the past year and a half or so, I've become convinced that in fact there is such a thing as evolution of consciousness and certainly expansion of consciousness. What I'd like to do is to talk about several aspects of near-death experiences that are terribly interesting and also terribly puzzling some of them to me. I think probably the thing that's most puzzling to most of us, or to, to many people, about near-death experiences is how, is how the patients can uh, describe so accurately things that went on during the resuscitation that they would have no normal way of knowing. But not being too well versed in parapsychology and the, the way that one rules out alternative explanations in this sort of study, in this sort of phenomenon, I'm, I'm baffled by that kind of aspect of near-death experiences, but not so deeply perturbed by that as I am about the, the uh, changes and the alterations in human development that we see in near-death experiences. So let me describe to you basically, and, and very in a very preliminary way, because as I said, I haven't formulated this very clearly yet, what I see as the real mystery of near-death experiences. The most difficult thing to understand and to explain about them, at least from my point of view as a psychiatrist, I'll start by talking about crises in life and how we handle them. And that is a large part of the work of a psychiatrist, of course, because most people who come to you come to you because of some sort of crisis event in their lives. And as I have worked with people over the years, it's gradually dawned on me that there are a range of different possible human responses to crisis events. So let me talk about three very typical ways that people respond to a crisis, some event in their life that, in their life that comes along and demands some sort of action or solution or change. Um, suppose that we're going along in life and at a certain baseline level of functioning about here, and then a crisis happens. Well, we may die, of course, and not get through the crisis at all, but let's not count that. Um, 
if someone survives, if he physically lives through a crisis, then one of three distinct kinds of things, some one or combination of three distinct kinds of things, will happen. First kind of thing that happened, that may happen, which we're all forget, uh, familiar with, is what we call regression. And that is when a person um, reaches a crisis episode in his life which he is overwhelmed by and he can't adapt to, he regresses to an earlier point of psychological functioning. Now, this is, has a bad sound to it, and regression gets a very bad name, but in fact, it's a very adaptive response at certain uh, in certain ways. And when we have an acute illness, for instance, it's very good to regress a little bit and become an infant, curl up in bed and let other people wait on you. The only thing wrong with regression is when it goes all the way and it doesn't come back, as in schizophrenia, for instance. Uh, uh, people get so regressed and they never come out of this profound regression. So it's slipping back to an early, earlier level of psychological functioning. The fact that, um, that it is adaptive in certain cases, as a matter of fact, sometimes failure to regress is pathological. I remember when I was in um, a psychiatry residency, on more than one occasion I was called to the intensive care unit, the cardiac care unit, uh, to try to talk someone out of leaving the hospital. I remember very well a case of a, a businessman who had come into the hospital in the early afternoon with a severe heart attack. And late that evening, after the, all the internal medicine people had gone home, I was called down to the, to the unit to try to convince this man to stay in the hospital. He was, leading, he was demanding to leave because he had a business appointment the next morning. He couldn't possibly miss this. So his problem was that he, he didn't regress. He wasn't comfortable with regressing and becoming a baby for a while and letting people take care of him. Another kind of Adaptation to a crisis event that we see often is um, what I will call, and this is not the technically correct term, but I'm going to use the term because it's so descriptive, fixation. It's kind of like you, you, you stop or you get fixated at the point of the crisis. And this we're very familiar with from the various kinds of post-combat uh, syndromes, post-traumatic disorders where people who've been through some terrible uh, experience, overwhelming experience in combat, uh, seem to relive this constantly in their dreams and even sometime in waking hours the, the images will intrude in a very dramatic way, almost hallucinated. Um, they are unable to move beyond this point of crisis that was so overwhelming and for the rest of their lives sometimes. They can't move beyond this. They withdraw from other people. And they constantly relive this event in their dreams and in their waking thoughts. Now, the third kind of possible response to a crisis is one that's rather more rare, unfortunately, and that's growth. We can uh, conceivably grow through a crisis, get better. We can look at these different ways of responding, I suppose, in terms of a baseline level of functioning. Say if your baseline level of functioning is here and the crisis takes place at this point, then regression is here, fixation is here, and growth is here. The, after the growth, your, your baseline level of functioning is even higher. Unfortunately, it's not that simple. As we all know, you've got to go through a pit first, generally. Um, and then down here, it seems like you'll never get better, but 
if you keep on plugging, eventually you do come back up. And, and when you get better, you find you're not just functioning at your baseline level before, but you've actually gone up a step. Well, as I have dealt with all kinds of crises that people have in their lives, the loss of a loved one or um, terrible accident, uh, injury and illness, all these different kinds of crises that we know about in life, it struck me that by and large people sort of spread out very evenly and crises spread out very, very evenly over these different kinds of responses. That is, given a terrible auto wreck, for instance, you're going to find quite a few people who regress after experiencing this, quite a few people who sort of fixate at the level of it, and a number of people who actually grow through an experience like this, even though it's so dreadful. What is most difficult to understand about near-death experiences to me, and I suppose we can see, and uh, let's look at a near-death experience for a moment as a kind of crisis, and it certainly must be a crisis, I think, to if you've um, lived a rather mundane life and uh, accepted the worldview that our culture suggests to us and so on, to suddenly, at a certain age, undergo a cardiac arrest and find yourself floating above your body, which you always thought was yourself, and then going through a tunnel and, um, as uh, this lady here so eloquently said yesterday, suddenly found yourself in contact with God um, without any transition. This can be a crisis event. It's certainly a crisis event. What is impressive to me is that I have talked now with well over a thousand people who have been through a near-death experience. I have yet to find a case where a person did not grow through it. And I immediately take that back to say that in two cases I know, a near-death experience has apparently precipitated a later psychotic breakdown. But in both of these cases, the people already had had psychotic breakdowns. In both of these cases, the people still valued their near-death experience very much, and they sharply contrasted it with their psychotic episode. They said that although they had had psychoses and they had also had near-death experiences, that the two experiences were entirely dissimilar. And although the psychosis was something that was a terrible thing to them, the near-death experience was something that was very inspiring to them. So why should it be that near-death experiences are almost universally positive in terms of the effect on the growth of human beings? I think this is a real puzzle. This general fact that this is an enormously positive experience for people that brings about instantaneous change and growth and positive development, I think sheds some very interesting light on the kinds of objections that are put up to the reality of near-death experiences. And I think all of us who've investigated large numbers of these reports and have interviewed these patients in depth um, can it at best be irritated and amused by some of the kinds of objections or, or alternative explanations of these experiences that people put up. For instance, it's very commonly said in the popular press when someone, is, uh, someone who has no uh, experience in interviewing these patients, <coughs> but who nonetheless is 
thought to be an expert on some aspect of the human mind, when they're asked what these experiences are all about, very common kind of approach is to say that uh, near-death experiences are some sort of defense mechanism. Um, I'm sure you've all heard things, uh, people say things like, well, surely these uh, experiences are just elaborate fantasies that we can't face the reality of final death. So at the moment of the close approach of death, we ad adopt a, a fantasy, a defense, which uh, assures us of this beautiful, uh, wonderful afterlife, and so then we don't have to face the reality that we're shortly to be annihilated. This, to me, I think, on any sort of closer examination, utterly dissolves, because if near-death experiences do have some sort of defensive function like that, or at least defensive in intent, it's rather interesting to me that they fail miserably as psychological defenses. And the reason for this is that people come out of near-death experiences not with their previous ego or their previous level of functioning intact, but rather um, with their whole state of consciousness revolutionized. Defenses try to shore up things and to keep the ego where it is. I think that it's quite plain in dealing with patients who've been through a near-death experience that they are moved along to a higher level of development and consciousness. And if the, again, as I said, if the in uh, the intention of these, the defense uh, or the near-death experience is to keep the ego intact, then obviously it's not doing a very good job. It's, um, it's making people confront in a very real way, sometimes quite painful, things about themselves. Um, yesterday in David Lorimer's workshop, there was a gentleman who remarked that after his own near-death experience, in which he had had a very dramatic review of all the events of his life, both positive and negative, he said, afterward, I felt I was truly myself for the first time, and yet paradoxically, the self I had been all along. So I think these experiences do have a very revolutionary effect on one's state of, of consciousness. and. Uh, there is no difficulty at all for me imagining from my long contact with patients who've been through this that, in fact, a person who has a near-death experience does undergo some very dramatic evolution in his state of consciousness. I think this is illustrated very uh, interestingly by, by another objection uh, that you hear all the time. Um, people who are uninformed or have not taken the time, I think, to listen to large numbers of these people um, who've been through this make a remark to this effect. They say that the belief in life after death is an intellectual construct and it has a defensive functioning, a function of keeping us from the painful um, reality of annihilation and uh, makes us feel okay in the light of the, the, the fact that our consciousness is, is going to be obliterated. I think this is 
fairly clearly not true in the case of people who undergo a near-death experience. And yet I want at the same time to say that in fact, in many cases that I have seen, not in near-death experience patients, but in many cases I've seen, the, the belief in a life after death is maintained for defensive reasons. I think that can certainly be the case. That some people have this intellectual belief because unless they were to have it, they would have terrible feelings and fears and um, depression about the reality of physical death. I think it is often maintained as a purely intellectual belief. But what's so striking to me as I have dealt with people who have had near-death experiences is that grief is even more acute when they lose someone that they love. If a person who's been through a near-death experience faces the loss of a loved one, I have found generally that they are far more open in the expression of grief and that this hits them emotionally in a much more profound way. At first I was puzzled about what was going on about this, but I think now that I understand. Suppose that Uncle Harry dies and you've always been attached to Uncle Harry and you love him very much. If you have an intellectual belief that there is a beautiful heaven to which Uncle Harry has gone, then you can not feel so bad about your loss of Uncle Harry. So I think in some cases the, the belief maintained on a purely intellectual and rational level does have that function. But what I've found with people who have a near-death experience, which uh, to them assures them of a survival of consciousness after death, they grieve very profoundly. Um, it's very upsetting to them, very troubling, a lot of tears and so on. But I asked a woman who's actually a friend of mine who has had a very profound near-death experience about this, and she said, um, and, and her great sense of loss with, with her uh, relative of hers who had recently passed on, she said, well, of course I know that he's okay, but I feel the loss now with inside of myself. So I think it's very interesting that people who've had this profound experience, in my judgment, don't have an intellectual belief in life after death. To them, it's a matter of direct experience, and the conviction comes, I think, not from an intellectual construct, but from a very deeply felt matter of the heart. So this has been, to me, one of the most, to me, um, fascinating findings about the, the inner spiritual life of these people. Another thing I have noticed as I have dealt with the, the people who've been through this is that there's a certain kind of state of mind or development of the personality that I see in very young people who have had near-death experiences uh, that is, to me, most remarkable. If I should, I should just begin by telling you roughly how this first manifested itself. I, I began to notice, as an empirical matter of fact, that quite a few of the people that I talked with who were in their early 20s 
when I interviewed them with about their experiences, struck me as much older. They seemed to be much more like the people I had known in my life who were in their 40s, usually late 40s, than they were the other people I had known who were in their 20s. And I wondered about this. Why should, um, why should people who have a near-death experience at an early age strike me as so mature? Uh, based on uh, interviews specifically directed at this uh, question and also some of my own reflections and trying to figure this out, I've sort of put it together this way. Most of us, when we're in our 40s, begin to suspect that this stuff you read about death is true. And um, although um, it, it doesn't seem possible when you're in your teens or in your early 20s, and this is certainly just death is just an old wives' tale then, when you're in your 40s, as I can attest personally now, um, you begin to see certain telltale signs in your body, which remind you very much of the ones you saw taking place in your grandmother. <laughs> and it becomes increasingly difficult, I think, at this point in life to deny that, well, there must be something to this stuff about death. And I think that this provokes in people who are in their 40s, roughly, a renewed interest in the question of death. Um, Socrates in the, the um, Phaedo talks about this a little bit. He said, you know, when, you, when you're faced with death, as he about was shortly to be executed by the hemlock, he said, seems to turn your attention to death. And, and uh, Samuel Johnson, I think, said, the prospect of death eminently concentrates the mind. And I think people begin to get a foretaste of this in their 40s, especially with their own body changes and perhaps seeing their friends uh, die at an increasing rate and so on, and their parents pass away. I think this is a, a very important psychological issue for us to deal with in our middle age. And so, it, in some way or another, people, to remain happy, I think, after middle age, have to make their peace with this issue. If you look at people who are 19 or 20, when they have a very profound near-death experience, when they see the medical chart in which their physician has written, pronounced dead of double lobar pneumonia or something like that, this is undeniable evidence that these tales about death are true, even for the very young. So I think people who have a near-death experience, a close call with death at a very early age, a very early time in their lives, tend to develop this kind of maturity that hopefully takes place in the normal progress of human development in the 40s. They have it much earlier. And I think all of you who are interested in this uh, and who have had access to large numbers of patients who have been through near-death experience, if you think about this and if you, go, if you listen to some of the er younger people um, who you know who have been through this, I think you'll probably agree that um, it does have a very profound effect on a person to, to face death at such an early age. All of these things suggest to me that what we're seeing in a near-death experience is a very profound encounter 
with perhaps the deepest level of the self. And I think that ultimately is what the near-death experience is all about and what makes it so um, important to the people to whom it happens. Now, uh, when I became so fascinated and engrossed in these developmental issues, um, and also because as I gave lectures all across the country and the United States and the, the world, I began um, to hear from people who had had all kinds of unusual experiences. Um, you know, there might be people in the audience who had had some sort of psychic experience, and they, I could just see them almost out there thinking, well, he's listening to these people who have almost died seriously, so maybe he'll listen to me. So um, people used to come up all the time, and I became very interested in this. I think there's a great gap um, in our society and the helping professions because um, there are all kinds of people out there, enormous numbers of people, perfectly sane, with no mental illnesses at all, who are having rather remarkable spiritual experiences which just don't fit into the presuppositions of our culture. And for that reason, when these experiences happen, sometimes they have a very great deal of difficulty in adapting to this. And that there is some sort of need for these people to, first of all, be able to express their experience, to, to have a, find a sympathetic ear to someone who will listen to them and not label them as insane. And just the act of expressing the experience or talking about it is usually very helpful to people. They need to be reassured that they're not alone, that although we may not understand such experiences fully, that nonetheless they are quite common in, in certain circumstances. And many other issues. Uh, people need to be put on a path or helped along on a path toward integrating this experience in a positive way in their lives. For that reason, incidentally, my psychiatric practice is now totally devoted to helping people who have been through some sort of unusual spiritual experience. Interestingly enough, as, as I'm going to talk a little, a little bit about later on, I have found that my, my psychiatry training was only very minimally helpful in establishing this new profession because, as we will see, near-death experiences are, have nothing to do whatsoever with mental illness. One thing we have noticed, though, in our practice is that one thing that one... You, that I have learned quite a bit about in, in psychiatry training is very helpful and that has to do with the fact that we have found that persons who undergo a profound spiritual experience or a near-death experience or a psychic experience and so on vary quite a bit in the way they are affected by this experience and this depends at least in part on personality structure. So I think personally that one thing about psychic experiences that has not been explored um, with any degree of depth and, uh, has, has been the relationship of, of um, personality variables to um, the interpretation of an, uh, a psychic experience or a near-death experience and also in the way in which a person experiences it. Let me just uh, illustrate this very briefly. We all know that there are certain kinds of personality types. And as I describe these personality types, even though I put complicated labels on them, all of us are going to recognize them and, 
and know people who are um, who have these particular traits. And indeed, all of these traits are in some degree in all of us. That's one thing about psychiatry. It's so different from any other medical specialty. I mean, you can be a surgeon and treat gallbladder disease and uh, do appendectomies and um, treat people for ulcers and whatever uh, without ever having had a gallbladder attack or an appendix problem or an ulcer yourself. But unfortunately, in psychiatry, um, there's no disease in psychiatry that you're going to come up with that you haven't had yourself. You know, it's, it really is in all of us, I think. So let's just talk roughly about personality styles. We all know lots of people who have what we call a compulsive personality style. Now, these people are very isolated from their emotions, and they talk more or less like machines. And they are very, very fixated on time. And um, I, I noticed on a plane uh, not too long ago, I sat by a man who was quite clearly compulsive. I noticed he had his little list. Uh, compulsives are very great list makers and so on, very tidy and orderly. He had his list there and he was going over it anxiously. And I noticed that he had on a watch and it was one of these digital watches. And compulsives are very, very interested in time. And um, so I noticed that in, uh, you see these digital watches where it gives the hour and the minute and then the second, right? The second is zipping by. Well, this man had his all the way out to the tenth of the second. And it was zipping by. <laughs> these people are very orderly. They have a great deal of difficulty expressing their emotions and feelings. And humor, for instance, is very threatening to them. They're, they're very serious. The compulsive person is one who is constantly on the lookout for serious meanings in life. Now, that's one style, and I'm sure we're all familiar with people, and I certainly, I think, you can strongly suspect that since I got two doctoral degrees by the time that I was 30 years old, I was very much of this temperament at one time, so I'm very familiar with it from within. Another kind of personality style, which is often seen as the opposite of this particular style, is what we used to call the hysterical personality. But that word hysterical got acquired some unfortunate connotations and it sounds bad. So one thing that happens occasionally in psychiatry is that the old terms begin to sound bad. So we change them and we have new terms that don't sound so bad. So now we call this histrionic personality because nobody knows what that means yet. <laughs> but as soon as it becomes a general, it becomes understood and people begin to um, apply it to these unpleasant states of mind and personality, then we'll have to change it again to make it more mysterious. Because often the words get their bad connotations simply by. by uh, by association with rather unpleasant phenomena. People with a compulsive person, or with a hysterical personality style are very dramatic and very seductive. And uh, I wish I could, and now in a smaller group and a party, I very often imitate hysterical personality style. But in an audience this size, I'm too embarrassed to do it. <laughs> but um, they are very seductive, at least on the super, on the surface of it 
And uh, always I, I noticed when I was a resident of psychiatry and training medical students, I, it was always very interesting to, to have uh, the medical students go down and into the emergency room and deal with a, a young woman with a hysterical personality and to see how how quickly the medical students were seduced into this. But it, one of Freud's great contributions to psychiatry, I think, was recognizing that this apparent seductiveness has nothing to do with sexuality. And um, he said he begins his essay on hysteria, as a matter of fact, by saying, I have noticed that hysterical persons say, I don't know a lot. And that's perfectly true because that reveals the, the mechanism of this. They repress. They, they don't let themselves know things that they obviously should. Very seductive. And they, they have what we call a global diffuse cognitive style. And that means that they don't make sense. I, <laughs> and they don't make sense in a very characteristic way. I remember, um, it's interesting the way you learn about these different states of mind in psychiatry by be, being so brutally exposed to them. And, and after I had uh, been called to the emergency room um, over a period of a year. I've been called to the emergency room maybe 20 times to, to visit with hysterical personalities who were there because of a very um, a suicide gesture. I don't make, mean to make fun of that, but they maybe swallow a few pills and so on, but it's hardly ever really what it purports to be. It's just a, a gesture to get attention. And... Um, I, I remember when I tried to, with my compulsive linear mind, I would try to ask these patients, well, what's going on? And, and my workups, my sheets would get longer and longer and longer, and I, and I would still not be able to make any sense of it. So finally, as a psychiatrist, you meet, reach maturity when you say, well, you don't have to do all that. You just forget about it and put down your impressions. Um, so these people are very dramatic about their emotions, and at least on the superficial level, they appear to be very emotional. So they're kind of, in one way, the opposite of a compulsive personality. Now, guess what happens to when these two uh, different kinds of personality styles decide to mate? They find one another. And uh, the compulsive person is looking around for someone to mate with, and he's not, oh, this is quite a charming creature, because he sees the, the, the very um, bright emotions, which he, of course, is not familiar with from within himself, and so he tries to get to latch onto them by grabbing onto her. And likewise, she who uh, is, doesn't let herself think very well is impressed by his apparent ability to reason. So they get into these very sticky relationships, which then the profession of marriage counseling mostly exists to resolve these things. <laughs> but there isn't any resolution, unfortunately, so. except for both parties to have some sort of spiritual experience. Now, there are many other kinds of distinct personality styles and so on, but I'm just giving you two as an example, examples to sort of illustrate what I'm going to say. Um, I think, from my own experience, that personality style weighs tremendously in evaluation, in, in evaluating 
spiritual experiences and in psychic experiences and so on. And yet, as far as I know, this has not been done in the investigations of, uh, of psychic experiences of one kind or another or trying to determine the nature of these things or, or the reality of them. And it seems to me that this is a very, very important um, question to raise. Uh, let me illustrate something that came up during Professor Ellison's um, lecture that is most interesting to me. It sort of started me thinking about something. There is a personality style called passive-aggressive personality. And these are people who are tremendously stubborn. And if you give them a task to do, if you assign them something to do and tell them to do it, then eventually it's going to be done in entirely in the wrong way, just in the opposite way. And all of that, you're not going to be able to put your finger at all on how they managed to do it, because they'll seem perfectly innocent. Well, I meant to do it the other way, but it's turned out entirely wrong. And they go through life like this, getting themselves and others steadily messed up, more and more messed up, until they either go into therapy or have some sort of amazing spiritual transformation. Now, I find it a most fascinating question to ask about Professor, the, the experiment that Professor Ellison described to us, which I found most fascinating, where the, the people were assigned the task of making the balls shift to the right or to the left, and some people were able to, to do it in the correct way. They could make all the balls shift, or a larger percentage of the balls shift to the right, say, than would have been expected by chance. Whereas another group that would consistently, when given the same task and told to make the balls shift to the right, would always make them shift to the left. Now, I, would, I think it would be a very interesting question to ask to take this group of people who consistently demonstrated this kind of result and administer to them a standard test of personality, the MMPI that we call it, and see whether, in fact, they showed passive-aggressive personalities. Now, if the, if the result is to be trusted, you know, that this really does occur, which is absolutely astounding, it, it would be a very interesting finding if we could also find that, that, some, um, uh, that, that the, the person had a passive-aggressive streak in him. Um, the relevance, I think, to all of this in the study of near-death experiences and other spiritual experiences is that I think you have to be very closely attuned to the personality style of a person when you're helping him deal with a profound spiritual experience that he's had. Um, let me illustrate this by some specific uh, points. Remember I talked about compulsive personality. It's been my finding that people who, uh, according to their, themselves and others, that prior to their near-death experience, had a compulsive personality are changed by the near-death experience in a certain distinct way, and that is that they open up more to the emotional side of their lives. On the other hand, people who have, prior to the near-death experience, a hysterical personality style will tend, after the near-death experience, to open up more to the intellectual side of themselves. I know a very dramatic example, a wonderful friend of mine who plainly from her account and that of her relatives and everyone I know her had but prior to her near-death experience a, a, a hysterical personality style. 
But one of the first things that she did when she came back from this profound vision was to start her education anew. And she started reading books. And when she comes to my house, she devours all of my sometimes complicated uh, books on various very intellectual subjects. And she told me that before her near-death experience, which took place when she was in her 40s, she had never read anything other than romantic novels. But the, the experience had the effect on her of really engaging her intellectual faculties and making her start uh, in this dimension of existence. Interestingly enough, it's, it doesn't affect all of the aspects of the personality, I noticed, because... Um, you know, very typically people with hysterical personalities, at least in the United States, wear what we call beehive hairdos and, and very bright, glittering garments and things like this. Well, I noticed that she still wears her hair in a beehive and she still has very um, brightly colored um, clothing and so on. So she's kept some of it, you see, but the, in terms of the, the inner self aspects of these things, they change very dramatically. So I think it's very important for us to to um, realize that, that a person's personality may be bear very significantly on how he experiences a spiritual transformation and that we need to be very careful in our therapy with these people to, to keep this in mind. Um, now, one thing I do want to say, and I want to close with this, um, is that when I went into my psychiatry training, I had the conviction, and I assumed that the phenomena that I would be learning about in psychiatry and that the mental illness and so on would help me very much understand near-death experiences and that I would be finding uh, things in my psychiatry training that would be very similar and be helpful to me in understanding this. Actually, it's turned out, um, as I went through my training, uh, I've found that this assumption of mine was totally mistaken. Um, one hears all the time people who undergo a near-death experience say such things as, well, I didn't tell anybody about this because I knew that they would all think that I was crazy, or people say I was crazy. In fact, this has occurred in, in, in many cases, and I know of a woman um, who actually did have a profound near-death experience. She's a professor of English. And when she had her experience, and she came back in the hospital after a cardiac arrest and began to talk about a light and going through a tunnel and so on, her relatives um, connived with her physicians and had her committed to a mental hospital. And this is one of the more sane people I've ever met in my life. So this is a real danger, and I think not only in the lay community, but in certain psychiatric uh, uh, circles, there's just an unreflective uh, tendency to dismiss um, near-death experiences as some kind of psychosis. But this is another one of those things that just absolutely dissolves on close inspection. When we read accounts in textbooks and so on about things such as things like um, schizophrenics hearing voices or having hallucinations uh, or people who are delirious having visual hallucinations and so on. 
it's so easy to then read an account of a near-death experience and say, well, this is the same sort of thing. These people were just delirious or it was some effect of the drugs and so on. I think um, that, in fact, when you, when you investigate it in, in a rather deeper um, way, uh, there, this apparent similarity just absolutely dissolves. Of course, in the course of my career, I've talked with many, many schizophrenic patients, and this is a, a special interest of mine, this, this schizophrenia. And delirium, um, this is an acute organic illness of the brain in which there's some chemical change in the body which affects brain functioning in a certain way, and people who who have this, uh, who, or, who are delirious, uh, very typically uh, have certain kinds of hallucinations. They may hallucinate uh, little animals running around their room or, or very complex visual hallucinations at times. But again, the markers of, of these, these various kinds of mental illnesses, schizophrenia, de- delirium, uh, various kinds of psychoses and so on, are well known and in addition, there's a certain kind of feel that one gets in talking with patients with these various kinds of illnesses. Um, they become very recognizable to you after you've seen a few dozen of them. For instance, just something that comes to mind, a delirious patient, for instance. Very easy to spot that and to tell that it's not uh, some sort of psychotic reaction like schizophrenia or something because the delirious patient will be typically lying there in the bed and when you start talking with him, he may be seen sort of spacey and looking off in the distance, and you start talking with him, and then he'll turn your, his attention to you, and he'll communicate and so on, and then you stop talking, and then he simply drifts back into it. You see, there are all kinds of multitudes of little markers like that which make, make these uh, various kinds of uh, disease entities very recognizable. When I went into my psychiatry training in medical school, I, I think I had a rather romanticized idea about psychosis. I had some sort of suspicion that maybe people who were psychotic with schizophrenia, for instance, were glimpsing levels of reality that, that um, the rest of us didn't, and that maybe this would be some sort of key or I could find out about these realms. My experience now has convinced me quite otherwise that, that schizophrenia and manic depressive illnesses and, and things like this are, they are illnesses of the brain. There's something wrong with the brain. And although we may not know it now exactly what it is, I'm confident that at some time in the future we may, unless we blow ourselves to smithereens before we find out, in principle this can be found out. But when we come to the realm of mystical experience, of near-death experience and so on, I'm convinced that we're dealing with something entirely different and something um, indeed very, very important for uh, our understanding of the nature of man. So thank you very much for having me here. I've really enjoyed this.